Scottish philosopher Thomas Carlyle is credited with originating the great man theory, an 18th century concept positing that history's course is shaped by the actions of exceptional individuals. One of Carlyle's poignant reflections on this theory is encapsulated in the quote, The history of the world is but the biography of great men. However, the question persists. What defines greatness? Many of my students express disenchantment with history education, contending that it merely reduces the subject to the rote memorization of facts and figures. Yet at a deeper level, their disinterest may stem from an aversion to examining history solely through the perspectives of individuals they find it challenging to relate to. The historical figures deemed great men, and we'll reserve the discussion about the method's apparent exclusion of women for another episode, typically belong to privileged, affluent backgrounds. Born into great families with means far beyond the average student's grasp. The resultant frustration may lie in the perception that these figures are distant and unrelatable, creating a disconnect. Even when a notable individual like Napoleon Bonaparte does emerge from the common masses, their trajectory often leads them to mirror the very structures they once sought to replace. This cyclical pattern, as exemplified by Bonaparte, implies that had my students existed during this time, they wouldn't have been Bonaparte. Instead, they might have found themselves relegated to the ranks of cannon fodder in his army. I teach about three self-proclaimed greats. Peter the Great and Catherine the Great both spearheaded the westernization of what had been perceived as uncivilized and backwards Russia. Their titles were earned, in part by not being as tyrannical as their predecessor, Ivan, who once flossed a guy to death. In contrast, the third great, Alexander, secured his acclaim through the unprecedented conquest of vast territories. Serving as the vanguard, Alexander not only risked his life, but also devoted it to the propagation of his culture, giving rise to the Hellenistic world. Only his own army, facing the threat of mutiny, compelled him to return home after 13 consecutive years of relentless warfare. Historians grapple with justifying the significant loss of life attributed to Alexander by weighing it against the enduring positive outcomes of his conquests. They often point to the cultural diffusion that followed in his wake as a rationale for why Alexander deserves his moniker, recognizing the transformative impact he had on the world. The inclusion of these individuals prompts a fundamental question. What defines a great man or woman of history? Peter, Catherine, and Alexander stand out as unquestionably successful figures. They not only expanded and transformed their own realms, but also left an indelible mark on the societies surrounding them. Despite employing distinct methods to achieve their objectives, success emerges as the common thread. Their accomplishments allowed them to inscribe their chapters in the biography of history. The adage that the victors write the story holds true, particularly in the context of history. George Washington's triumph over the British ensured his status as a great man, rather than a traitor to his country. Even the enormity of Genghis Khan's brutality can be overshadowed to allow us to narrate the story of his greatness. The Mongols, through their triumphant conquests, facilitated organized trade along the Silk Road. Similar to Alexander, Genghis Khan's campaigns gave rise to cultural diffusion, enabling historians to recount the events of the 13th century through the lens of one extraordinary individual.
Indianapolis native John Green created the YouTube program Crash Course with the aim of making history more accessible to kids, especially those that found themselves disengaged from their history lessons because of memorizing names and dates. In this world history series, Green has a number of reoccurring jokes. Foremost among them is the fact that the Mongols are always the exception. Often portrayed as barbarians who obliterated civilizations, the Mongols consistently triumphed despite being heavily outnumbered in nearly every battle. Paradoxically, they couldn't read or write, yet they played a pivotal role in expanding education across Asia. Notably, they conquered Russia in the winter, something that neither Napoleon nor Adolf Hitler were capable of. Professor Jack Weatherford, a revisionist historian and author of a number of wonderful books on the Mongols of this era, writes that Genghis Khan's innovative fighting techniques made the heavily armored knights of medieval Europe obsolete. In 25 years, the Mongol army subjugated more lands and people than the Romans had conquered in 400 years. He conquered more than twice as much as any other man in history. In American terms, Weatherford puts it, the accomplishment of Genghis Khan might be understood if the United States, instead of being created by a group of educated merchants or wealthy planters, had been founded by one of its illiterate slaves, who, by the sheer force of personality, charisma, and determination, liberated America from foreign rule, united the people, created an alphabet, wrote the Constitution, established universal religious freedom, invented a new system of warfare, marched an army from Canada to Brazil, and opened roads of commerce in a free trade zone that stretched across the continents. Our challenge today is to explain how they were able to do so. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This series focuses upon Mongolia's most notorious conqueror, Genghis Khan. Episode number two, How They Did It. Great men often distinguish themselves by surrounding and elevating a number of other exceptional individuals. As we explored in episode one, Genghis Khan diverged from conventional kinship-based appointments and instead championed meritocracy. One striking example is Subadai, his preeminent general, who joined Temujin's camp at the tender age of ten. A starry-eyed boy, Subatai had spent his entire life herding reindeer in the northern Taiga region and had never set foot on the steppe nor wielded a weapon before arriving at the Khan's camp. His sole proficiency was in ice skating, a skill unfortunately overlooked by the Mongolian war machine. Jebe, known as the Arrow, earned his breakthrough by accomplishing what was perceived as an impossible shot, which nearly killed the Khan. Mukulai, credited with shaping Mongol military doctrine, entered the Khan's service as a 15-year-old slave. Despite their disparate backgrounds, each of these men were entrusted with full command over their troops and earned unwavering trust from Temujin. Remarkably, none of his generals deserted him, even during the six decades of near-constant warfare. In return, Genghis Khan refrained from ridiculing or punishing them, an unprecedented record among history's most infamous conquerors. Loyalty in the Khan's eyes held paramount significance, and this unwavering commitment from his generals became a defining characteristic of his leadership. Genghis Khan displayed a remarkable willingness to assimilate his enemies into his new nation, a practice he applied to numerous steppe tribes, 
excluding only the Tatars, who had caused the death of his father. However, there were rules governing this assimilation. Initially, enemies were given the opportunity to surrender, but once battle commenced, any change of allegiance was strictly prohibited. The Khan understood that individuals willing to switch sides once were likely to do so again, and such duplicity had no place in his army. Loyalty was paramount. To underscore the significance of trust, Genghis Khan's inner circle included individuals who served as his cooks and personal attendants. This deliberate choice highlighted the importance of loyalty and meritocracy within his leadership. The practice of meritocracy, where hard work and skill lead to promotions, is never controversial, as it fosters a culture where individuals are more inclined to contribute their best efforts around the camp. Mandatory military service was imposed on all males aged 15 to 70, a practice that necessitated women to assume the responsibilities of organizing various aspects of daily life. This expansive role empowered women, drawing parallels with ancient Sparta, another contender for history's greatest armies. There, slaves known as helots were tasked with all labor for the society, the Mongols also relied on slavery. However, given the Mongols' minimal production of goods, the majority of tasks fell to their wives rather than their slaves. While conscripting large portions of the population typically breeds dissent and disorder, Temujin countered this by instituting a rigorous hierarchical structure within his armies. He organized the collective into smaller, more manageable groups. Each man belonged to a Tumid, a group of 10,000, but was also part of a Minquan, a group of 1,000, a Jaghun, a group of 100, and most crucially, an Arban, or a group of 10. This organizational framework provided the Mongols with a clear chain of command at all levels. The groups of a thousand, or Minquan, operated similarly to the ancient Greek polis, serving as the focal point for political, economic, and social activities. This system supplanted the old clan lineage and played a pivotal role in forging the new Mongol nation. It also facilitated the separation of old warring factions, such as the Naimin and the Kirat, preventing the resurgence of old tribal loyalties. Switching regiments was not an option, and attempting to do so carried the death penalty for disloyalty. Former enemies were compelled to become brothers in arms. At the smallest unit level, the Arban, individuals were tasked with self-policing. If anyone violated the Khan's laws, detailed in what would become known as the Yasa, the entire Arban could face punishment. Those who reported wrongdoings within their group were spared, creating a system that incentivized units to police themselves. Instead of fostering distrust, this structure seemed to exert positive peer pressure, contributing to the overall harmony within the Mongol military. Those that had the most to lose from the ending of the old ways were held in check by an adaptation to traditional hostage-taking. For our own understanding, we can draw an example from the Greeks. Philip, Alexander's father, had spent his youth as a hostage in Thebes, as a quote-unquote royal guest. Rather than being confined to prison, he enjoyed every right except the one that mattered most— he couldn't leave. It was during this time that Philip observed the Greek phalanx fighting formation, later enhancing and applying the system to conquer Greece. Although he wouldn't have heard of the Western conqueror whom he would be compared to the most, he adopted the same strategy, recruiting at least one son from each of his commanders as a de facto hostage and a guarantee of good behavior these sons were integrated into his personal guard, 
with a clear understanding that the Khan would personally mold them to ensure their unwavering loyalty to him. If a commander ever betrayed him, Temujin knew precisely where to find that man's child. Interestingly, even as he took hostages, Genghis Khan outlawed the kidnapping of women in the Yasa, having already experienced both sides of that coin. Despite the emphasis on meritocracy in the Khan's governance, his family was an exception to many of the rules that he laid down for others. While a commander's sons didn't automatically inherit their father's positions, Temujin's children did. Each was given a specific bureaucratic task in preparation for their rule. Tulu served as the commander-in-chief of the army. Jochi oversaw hunting and the chase. Shagatai enforced the legal code. And Ogade managed the empire as the chief civil administrator. They also personally led forces in numerous military campaigns, albeit not in the role of a general. This careful balancing of meritocracy and family ties was a distinctive feature of Genghis Khan's leadership. The absence of a surviving written copy of Genghis Khan's Yasa, or Code of Laws, has led some to argue that it may never have existed, especially considering the Mongols' initial illiteracy. Instead, they suggest that the Yasa was more of an informal codification of Mongol traditions. For example, it is known to have placed a significant emphasis on the killing of animals, with laws detailing the proper way to restrain and butcher an animal, resembling certain aspects of Jewish kosher cultural traditions. Violations against animals carried severe punishments. The Yasa also codified numerous traditional taboos, such as rules against touching fire with a knife or spitting out food. The latter offense, if committed, resulted in the violator having a hole made in the side of their gur, a traditional Mongolian dwelling, through which they were then later dragged and executed. The laws of the Yasa extended to the Mongol central obsession with war, it imposed the death penalty on officers who disobeyed the Khan, and captains of the Minquans, the groups of 1,000, were prohibited from direct communication with each other to prevent any attempts at organizing resistance among the Khan's people. If a soldier failed to appear for duty, they could be replaced by their wife, daughter, or mother, reflecting the importance of military service within the society. While women fighting was not the norm, it was not unheard of, and the Mongols' preferred weapon, the bow and arrow, meant that skill was prioritized over physical gender differences. The Yasa covered a broad spectrum of subjects, and the punishments for transgressions were straightforward. Death. Virtually all crimes, from committing robbery to adultery, homosexuality, rape, theft of food, failing to share food with a stranger, urinating in running water, practicing witchcraft, and hurting a horse's eyes, were all deemed capital offenses. The severity of punishments underlines the strict and unforgiving nature that was Genghis Khan. Contrary to popular belief, Genghis Khan often sought to prevent war, rather than actively pursuing it. However, the perception of the Khan as a destructive force persisted among those who were unfortunate enough to experience the wrath of the Mongols. The Arab chronicler Ibn al-Labad captured this sentiment by stating, They do not seek territory or wealth but only the destruction of the world so that it may become a wasteland. Despite such impressions, there are no known instances where the Mongols engaged in random attacks on other civilizations. Each of their conflicts arose in response to perceived slights to Mongol honor. 
While some of these grievances may not align with contemporary justifications for genocidal destruction, it is essential to recognize that these decisions were made within the context of a different set of standards. One of the primary causes of war for the Mongols was the mistreatment of diplomats and traitors, groups highly esteemed in Mongol society. An assault on caravan traders, for instance, triggered the subjugation of the entire Middle East. Similarly, the invasion of Russia was sparked by the beheading of a diplomat. Genghis Khan's ultimate goal was not necessarily to rule all the conquered lands, but to ensure a continuous flow of goods towards his homeland. It is said that during his reign, a merchant could traverse the entire Silk Road with a gold plate on their head without facing a single threat to their safety. The emphasis on trade and the protection of diplomats and traders reflected the pragmatic and purposeful approach of Genghis Khan, challenging the perception of the Mongols as wantonly destructive conquerors. Genghis Khan's generosity was a notable aspect of his leadership. Even in his later years, when he continued to live in a traditional Gur tent, albeit a considerably large one, he revolutionized the traditional looting system, making all gains initially his own, which he then redistributed based on acts of heroism during battle. Shares of slain soldiers went to their families, while those who displayed exceptional bravery were rewarded with great wealth. This incentive structure encouraged individuals to take significant risks during combat. For instance, during the Battle of Beijing, Xinhua fought valiantly, despite having an arrow lodged in his left arm. Genghis Khan, atop the Tower of the Great Compassionate One in Beijing, shot arrows in the four cardinal directions, symbolizing the extent of Qinghuai's newfound ownership of all houses and properties within that range. Loyalty, therefore, became a direct path to life-altering wealth. In another instance, Shigai Kwagu was tasked with taking inventory of the Beijing treasury. Encouraged by a Chinese civil servant to skim a million off the top, Shigai promptly informed the Khan, who declared it impossible for Shigai to steal his own property. Genghis Khan, acknowledging the man's loyalty, had just gifted him the entire treasury of the capital city. However, there was one group of people that Genghis Khan did not hold high in his regard. Peasants. The nomadic Mongolian diet primarily consisted of meat, and agriculture was deemed a necessity only for city dwellers. Some historians even entertained the idea that Genghis Khan may have perceived peasants as a form of subhumans. During campaigns, his soldiers would deliberately trample farm fields to ensure they turned into pasture for small grasses. The rationale was that grass was sufficient for the survival of horses, goats, and oxen, essential for the Mongols, thus justifying the destruction of all farmland. This desire to revert the land to pasture resulted in significant ruin during the Mongol campaigns. Teaching about Genghis Khan often involves going down the proverbial rabbit hole regarding the destructive acts that have been attributed to him, such as the grim account from the ambassador of Zongdu who claimed the earth was left greasy from the human fat of the slain. Numerous such stories exist, portraying a brutal fighting force responsible for ending millions of lives. But many of these stories are just propaganda. Propaganda and tactical deception played significant roles in Genghis Khan's rise. Facing a considerably larger force from the Naaman on the eve of battle, Temujin ordered his men to create five campfires each night to confuse the enemy. Additionally, he employed other clever tactics, 
such as sending a small regiment to stir up dust by tying branches to their horses' tails. The resulting dust cloud gave the illusion of significant reinforcements rapidly approaching the battle. With each soldier having multiple spare mounts, they even tied dummies to the saddles to conceal their true numbers, suggesting that the Khan was quite strategic regarding the use of deception in warfare. Genghis Khan, recognizing the power of a good story, believed that the destruction of one city would prompt the surrender of the next ten without a fight. To achieve this, he often allowed a few individuals to escape in order to spread stories of the devastation. Many of these narratives, however, carry the unmistakable scent of propaganda. A prime example is the story of the siege of Valahai in China. After being thwarted by the city's walls, the Mongols purportedly announced that they would lift the siege in exchange for 10,000 birds and 1,000 cats. In a desperate attempt to save their lives, the city's residents handed over their cherished pets. The tale then takes a fantastical turn, claiming that the Mongols tied bundles of sticks to the tails of these animals, set them alight, and released them. Terrified and ablaze, the panicked pets supposedly fled back to their homes, spreading flames throughout every corridor in the city. The guards on the walls were then called away to contain the blaze, leaving the city walls unmanned, allowing the Mongols to enter with a thirst for slaughter. While such stories are compelling and emphasize the psychological tactics employed by Genghis Khan, historians often view them with skepticism, recognizing the potential for embellishment or outright fabrication to serve propaganda purposes. This isn't to say that it definitively didn't happen. There are a great number of stories throughout history of armies using animals as weapons. In my experience, teaching this type of history piques my students' attention. And there are some fun ones out there, if you consider sadism to be a type of humor. Supposedly, the Song Dynasty bound monkeys in straw jackets and set them both alight and loose in their enemies' camps. The Soviets get bonus points in this sadistic game for using German shepherds of all breeds against the German Nazis. They trained the pups to find food underneath tanks. Then, when the Germans invaded, they tied radio-controlled bombs to the backs of the dogs. After running beneath the moving tanks, presuming that that was where their next treat was, their radio receivers became blocked and proceeded to detonate. But first place has to go to the Persians, who invented the cat grenade. They used them against the Egyptians who revered the felines as the goddess Beset, the god of home and love. The Persians lobbed the kitty cats at their enemies, including some via the catapult. Fearful of hitting a cat, the Egyptians were unwilling to fire back at the advancing Persian hordes and were subsequently routed in the Battle of Pelusium. These examples notwithstanding, Tall stories like this about the Mongols sound more like disinformation than an accurate retelling of history. There are other stories. In one, a woman that was special to the Khan lost her firstborn son during the taking of a city. The great Khan proceeded to collect every firstborn son, thousands of them. He had them bound and lined up so that the aggrieved woman could slit each of their throats. Again, this is not to say that the Mongols were not violent, but when you think about the amount of time it would take to investigate, sort, arrest, bound, and then systematically and ruthlessly kill each firstborn, it just wasn't worth the time or effort. For the Mongols, dead was dead. They regularly destroyed the walls of any city that they conquered. That way, if they ever had to return, it would be easier the second time. They also leveled a fair number of cities that were of no use to them, or ones that put up a particularly difficult fight. After the destruction, the Khan would even leave behind a small but elite force 
to kill anyone that returned to check for survivors days after the Mongols had left. When they decided to make an example out of a city, they really made an example. The campaign against the Charismian Shah is rife with examples, as described by the Muslim historian Giovanni. He provides excruciating detail on the sackings of Merv, a cultural capital of the Middle East, as well as Nishapur. Giovanni writes, The Mongols ordered that aside from 400 artisans and some children taken into captivity, the entire population, including women and other children, should be killed, sparing no one. The people of Merv were then distributed among the soldiers, and in short, each man was assigned the execution of three or four hundred persons. So many had been killed by nightfall that the plain was soaked with the blood of the mighty. And Nishapur, the Mongols severed the heads of the slain from their bodies, piling them separately for men, women, and children. The historian vividly describes, Flies and wolves feasted on the breasts of religious dignitaries, while eagles on mountaintops indulged in the flesh of delicate women. Cities that learned of such destructive tactics were far likely more inclined to accept the Khan's terms of surrender without engaging him in battle. The ability to compel the enemy to yield without a fight was crucial for the Mongols, given their lack of spare forces. They frequently found themselves outnumbered, facing odds as daunting as 10 to 1 against Chinese, Arab, and European armies. These opposing civilizations had surplus populations, although their men were not typically professional soldiers, unlike the Mongols that they faced. The Khan governed a vast territory larger than the entire continent of Africa, necessitating the dispersion of forces across all corners to prevent uprisings. Managing the newly conquered kingdoms fell to his daughters. In their military endeavors, the Mongols prioritized minimizing losses in every action. When their propaganda efforts failed to avert battle, their tactics proved effective in securing victory. The core of the Mongol fighting forces consisted of light cavalry. Due to a belief in the presence of enemy spirits within their blood, the Mongols avoided close-quarter combat, emphasizing the use of bows and arrows. Unlike military leaders such as Napoleon and Alexander, the Mongols didn't rely on a single advanced strategy. Instead, they employed a versatile range of tactics that contributed to their dominance on the battlefield. In other words, they were adaptable. We again turn to Professor Jack Weatherford to illuminate some of the formations employed by the Mongols. For hit-and-run skirmishes, they would execute the moving bush, or tumbleweed formation. In these, small groups would disguise themselves as literal shrubs to evade the watchful eyes of sentries. Throughout the night, they would slowly advance their positions towards the enemy. It's somewhat amusing to consider that many of the Mongols' enemies' last thoughts might have been, am I crazy? Or did that bush used to be over there? The Mongols took their acting commitments seriously. The moving bush involved soldiers methodically moving through the field for a full day or night. Another formation was the lake formation, where a long line of horsemen would advance, launch arrows, and be swiftly replaced by the next line as they turned their horses back and forth across. Like waves, they struck and fell back quickly, continuously assaulting the enemy even as it charged towards them. Each time, they turned away from their enemy and struck again, akin to the tide. When facing enemies with shields, a group of heavy cavalry would form up and execute the chisel, charging towards the line to punch through and create holes, for more Mongols to swarm in, separate, and then flank the enemy. 
in direct contrast to European armies that traverse the countryside in single-file formations for efficient travel along roadways. Mongol troops spread out across the landscape with their commander in the center. This wing formation, as it was known, served to envelop the enemy and ensured that they were always ready for combat. As I hinted at, the Mongols displayed remarkable acting skills, often pretending to be defeated by throwing down their weapons and fleeing in terror, a tactic they referred to as the dogfight. Enemies lured into pursuit would find themselves subsequently ambushed. The Mongols excelled at this strategy, maintaining a calculated distance from the enemy to encourage pursuit while traveling far enough away to tire out their adversaries. When it was time to spring the ambush, they would dismount, send their horses away with a verbal signal, and then remount fresh horses to overpower their exhausted foes. In essence, despite the perception of the barbaric and illiterate Mongols, they possessed a highly developed and intricate military structure that gave them a significant advantage in warfare. While various steppe peoples like Attila the Hun mobilized horse armies that spread terror across Europe, settled civilizations could often rely on their walls to neutralize the natural advantages of steppe warriors. Genghis Khan, facing initial challenges with siege warfare, persevered and eventually mastered the tactic. The first attempt was Yinchon, China in 1209. That resulted in a stalemate for two months. However, when Temujin arrived, he ordered the Mongols to dam up a nearby river, redirecting it against the city walls. Though the first dike broke and flooded the Mongols' camp, the second attempt succeeded, and the flood opened the city, allowing the Mongols to conquer it. This wasn't their only clumsy attempt at taking out a city. Remember when I told you that Genghis Khan didn't consider peasants to be human? His troops would herd thousands of peasants towards the major cities of China. The strategic reasoning behind this was twofold. If the Chinese allowed their own peasants inside, the city's food supplies would quickly deplete, and overcrowding during a siege could trigger an epidemic within the walls. Conversely, if guards on the walls prevented the peasants' entry, the mass of peasants became, in Genghis Khan's words, arrow catchers. Positioned between the Mongols and the city walls, the peasants were then employed as moat fillers, forced to carry rocks forward to absorb arrows. If fortunate, a peasant might fall into the moat with the rock, providing a crude form of adhesive for the rocks to form a bridge eventually creating a pathway for invasion. This herding tactic of peasants was honed during the great hunts of the Mongols. On these occasions, the great Khan would select a location with a view to enjoy the festivities with his wives and concubines. Scouts were sent ahead to locate large herds, and the army of hunters formed wings to gradually surround the prey. Soldiers were forbidden from attacking until the Khan's signal, with severe beatings for those who allowed animals to escape. The men following the signals would methodically drive the animals until they were encircled. This included stags, lions, and wild oxen. Once they were pushed towards the center, the killing would then commence, with individual warriors encouraged to fight the beasts on foot with swords or daggers. Upon a second signal, the massacre would cease, and the surviving animals were preserved for breeding and future hunts. The Mongols adopted various techniques that were common to daily life in the steppe to warfare. Incorporating an advanced system of communication through raised flags was just one of them. While in China, peasants replaced the role of animals, the principles remained the same. The soldiers disciplined to immediately halt the slaughter via a nonverbal signal had been ingrained in their training, ensuring that no Mongol would disrupt their formation even during the heat of battle. 
As the Mongols conquered more cities, their initial rudimentary siege techniques gave way to a deeper interest in Chinese engineering. Genghis Khan was particularly intrigued, absorbing anyone with skills related to siegecraft into his army. By the time the Mongols invaded the Middle East, they possessed the most advanced siege engines in the world, including catapults, trebuchets, and the oxbow. During Subadai's invasion of Hungary, charging horses were announced by launching Chinese fireworks, a phenomenon entirely unknown to Europeans. There are accounts of cities in Hungary where soldiers stopped raising the drawbridge and abandoned their posts, believing that they faced obvious sorcery. And that is the magic of Genghis Khan, as in essence he convinced his enemies to leave the front door open. That is a form of elite-level wizardry. Under Genghis Khan, the Mongols actively pursued every possible information advantage, including the development of an intricate spy system. The Khan planted spies a decade before Subadai's mission to Europe, ensuring that they knew the ins and outs of every society they faced. In addition to a formal spy network, the Khan utilized an informal interstate information system, facilitated by trade caravans. Traders were treated with the utmost respect, generously rewarded for any information they could provide. Given the Mongols' constant invasions to the west, Traders from Africa, the Middle East, and Europe traversed enemy territory, gathering valuable information that eventually reached Temujin's ears. Messages were transmitted across vast distances through the Yam system, an early form of the Pony Express. Relay stations were strategically placed, allowing Mongols to cover 20 to 30 miles in a sprint to the next messenger, who would then sing the memorized message to the next rider. Spies and scouts infiltrated cities disguised as peasants before sieges. Then they identified weaknesses, uncovered divisions, and occasionally left a back door slightly ajar. Genghis Khan's spy network benefited from his commitment to a multicultural state. By absorbing various ethnic groups, he created a diverse empire where the concept of a Mongol was fluid, making it challenging for enemies to identify them. This inclusivity extended to religion, as Genghis did not impose his beliefs on his followers. While he personally worshipped the eternal blue sky and sought eternal life, he welcomed religious figures from Catholic priests, Jewish rabbis, and Islamic Amans to Buddhist, Confucianist, and Taoist monks in his court. His empire was one of the world's first to explicitly allow freedom of religion, granting tax exemptions and freedom from public service to religious leaders of all faiths. Once weaknesses had been revealed through his spies, Genghis worked diligently to exploit them. Contrary to the stereotype of illiterate barbarians, the Mongols engaged in sophisticated tactics, including forging official seals for misleading letters. These letters contained false information about Mongol movements, troop size, and intentions. The spies would then leak this disinformation to the targeted city's defenses. A notable example occurred in the besieged city of Dading, where the Mongols captured an envoy assumed his identity, and infiltrated the city's defenses. After implementing changes that prompted the besieging Mongols to abandon the city, the fake envoy dismantled the defenses, leading to a victorious Mongol takeover soon thereafter. After completing a conquest, the Mongols engaged in a selective process to determine the usefulness of the survivors. Skilled craftsmen and blacksmiths were highly valued and welcomed among all conquered peoples. However, aristocrats faced a different fate. Rarely were nobles integrated into the Mongol horde for several reasons. The general population usually harbored low opinions of aristocrats, 
and these sentiments only worsened in the aftermath of a lost war. By publicly executing the nobility, Genghis Khan could win over some commoners to his side. Moreover, by eliminating the aristocracy, Genghis Khan effectively severed the head of the social system. In some of his earliest campaigns, cities would rebel after the Mongols had left, often led by the wealthy elites seeking to restore their previous status. By eliminating these elites, the Mongols diminished the motivation for uprisings. Following this approach, Genghis Khan, much like Alexander the Great, would bring in loyal bureaucrats from other parts of his kingdom to oversee and rebuild any cities he chose to spare. This strategy worked to consolidate control, preventing future rebellions led by the ousted ruling class. Mongol armor was intricately designed to complement their distinctive fighting style. Underneath their fur garments, they wore hardened leather and rectangular plates made of iron or bone scales. During conquests, Genghis Khan ensured that all his horsemen were equipped with silk vests, a fabric worn underneath the armor that resisted tearing when pierced by arrows. This unique armor allowed them to pull arrowheads out intact instead of pushing them through the other side, aligning with their preference for long-distance combat. The Mongols employed three types of shields, each serving specific purposes. Willow wood shields were used for sentry duty, wicker shields for protection against arrow barrages, and turtle shell shields for scaling city walls. While they possessed swords, maces, and javelins, the bow was their primary weapon. The composite recurve bow of the Mongols had a stronger draw than the English longbow and was effective at a range of up to 300 feet. Crucially, it could be drawn from horseback, and Mongol warriors wore a special stone ring on their right thumb to aid in drawing the bow. Their standard-issue quivers held 60 arrows, including those designed to whistle for signaling, broadheads for close-quarter combat, and sharp points for long-range shooting. Many arrows were specifically crafted to pierce armor, with bone tips dipped in brine while red-hot. If the arrow did not cause immediate harm, it was designed to break into pieces inside the body, hastening infection. Additionally, most arrows were coated with viper poison. The Mongol saddles made of oiled wood allowed archers to turn around and fire backwards from their charging horses at their pursuing enemies. In an intriguing detail, Mongol soldiers always carried a few jewels or fancy trinkets into each battle. This served a strategic purpose. If they had to retreat, Throwing jewels at pursuing enemies would often cause them to stop and inspect the valuable items, providing an opportunity for the Mongol soldier to escape and fight another day. But the Mongols' greatest weapon was unquestionably their unparalleled mobility, marking the advent of a war style akin to the first instance of Blitzkrieg. In almost every epic tale of Mongol invasion, the narrative commences with the observation that they seemingly appeared out of nowhere. The Mongols had mastered the art of living both on and off their horses. Stories abound of their ability to sleep in the saddle, and with an abundance of spare mounts, they could cover greater distances at faster speeds than any other army. Facing scarcity of food, they ingeniously bled their horses, filling their stomachs with the blood to deceive their bodies into a feeling of fullness. They even utilized the space beneath the saddle to cure meat, transforming it into jerky while in motion. In their conquest of China, they crossed the supposedly impassable Gobi Desert, defying the beliefs of those on the other side. To vanish the Charismian Shaw, they traversed the formidable Altai Mountains. When conquering Russia, they did so in the heart of winter, riding across frozen rivers with specially designed boots to provide traction for their horses. 
deviating from conventional armies burdened by baggage trains, the Mongols achieved an astonishing average of 65 miles of daily travel. This unmatched speed became a historical benchmark that remained unchallenged until the era of Napoleon. The Mongols' mobility, adaptability, and strategic prowess solidified their status as one of history's most formidable military forces. In summary, the Mongols were the perfect army. This was in large part because of their command of the horse, which remained the dominant weapon of war until the 20th century. Their organization, communication, and tactical knowledge gave them a significant planning advantage. Their weapons and armor were suited to their fighting preferences, and they had mastered the principle of mobility. The Mongols were the ultimate warriors in the 13th century, and they defeated every foe that they faced, changing the world as they went. Genghis Khan played a huge role in the creation and maintenance of his fighting forces, but he was not just one great man that changed history. The individual exploits were done by the people fighting on behalf of the Mongols, men and women that were willing to change everything that they had known prior to the Khan's arrival. But all of it could have been for naught, had a slave not helped Temujin's escape of the Kangu, or if Jelme had not belittled himself to suck viper poison from the Khan's neck. If Temujin had ignored his general's advice, or lost his way upon achieving riches, we would have likely never have heard of this backwards barbarian. Still, we teach Mongolian history through the eyes of this one man, Genghis Khan. But it doesn't mean that we have to exclude the methods that were used beneath him. It also doesn't mean we have to ignore the carnage that he leveled against his enemies in order to define Temujin as a great man of history. After all, there are too many things that go into determining which historical figures are great. But we can definitely say that success is chief among them. And I challenge you to find another figure in history who was more successful at achieving his goals than the Khan of Khans. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you wish to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.